It's good to be with you, church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. The last six weeks has been such an incredible and significant time in the life of our church. We camped out for six weeks on one verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. Personally, for me, the reason why the vision series was so good is because this, this first part of the verse, I don't know about you, this first part of the verse really resonates with me, and I, and I believe it. I do genuinely believe that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that I could ask, all that I could think. But the second part, according to the power that is at work within us, that's the difficult part for me. It, I'm kind of like a theology guy. I, I don't have problems believing some of these truths of the gospel, these weighty truths of the gospels. But the thought of him actually doing those great and amazing things, for him to do the far more abundant level kind of things through me, through us as a church, that's hard for me to believe. For that, there are truths of God out there, and if obedience means just believing in it, if obedience means, God, I believe you, I trust you, if that's all it means, then I'm a faithful obeyer of God's word. But if obedience means actually doing, actually going and doing the things that he's commanding of me personally, of us as a church, and through our hands and through our feet, actually serving the city and in this world, and through us, according to the power that is at work within us, that he would do the far more abundant kind of things, that was the struggle for me, and that was the part that I was challenged at through the vision series. And so, we already see him kind of transitioning here in the, in the last verse of Ephesians chapter 3, and as we go into Ephesians chapter 4, that's what this message is all about. That there is a theology that is to be known and believed and felt in the heart and mind. But also that theology can't just stay over here. It has to move into our lives, into our hands, and for us to actually obey the scriptures. And so, like I said, we've been in Ephesians 3.20 for so long that I might have forgotten that we're actually moving through the book of Ephesians. And so, we're going to do that today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Not Ephesians chapter 3. Woohoo! Ephesians 4. Ready? 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're at a very critical juncture in the book of Ephesians. We're at the halfway point. We just finished looking at Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, and now we're moving into the second half, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. And this isn't just a convenient halfway point. If you actually study and look at the book of Ephesians as a whole, what you'll see is that the book of Ephesians is divided up into these two major sections, Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6. Let's do a quick review. Ephesians 1 through 3, what is it about? It's about doctrine. It's about theology. 
It's the things that we need to know, feel, and believe. It's the things that God has done. The things that God has done to save us. Ephesians 1, verse 3, tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God did that. Did you know that? He blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, God chose us before the foundations of the world. God did that. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. He did that. Verse 7, he gave us redemption through the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of our trespasses. God gave us redemption. He gave us forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. He did that. Verse 11, not only that, he gave us an inheritance. Verse 13, not only that, as if all those things weren't enough, it says he gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us his very self, showing us he's not withholding anything good, not even himself from us. And then Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say, all that God did wasn't only for the purpose of us being reconciled back to God vertically, but he did all those things so that we would be reconciled back to each other horizontally. Verses 13 through 16 tells us that the both Jews and Gentiles, the greatest enemies at the time, they were reconciled together. That on the cross, Jesus destroyed the enmity that, ex- that existed between them. And he called them as one, into one family. He called them to a peace. He called them into a family where they have one father. And then Ephesians chapter 3, after explaining everything that God has done, he ends the chapter by praying. Well, what does he pray for us? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 1 through 3, all the things that God has done to save us, Paul is saying, I want you to comprehend it. I'm praying for you right now to comprehend it and feel it. Ephesians 1 through 3, all the things that God has done, I want you to know it, I want you to believe it, I want you to embrace it in the mind and in the heart, all the things that God has done to save you and to make you his own. Well, if that's, if that's Ephesians 1 through 3, what is Ephesians 4 through 6 about? It seems like we kind of covered all the important things. And so what else could Ephesians 4 through 6 have to tell us? Well, Ephesians 4 says things like, don't lie anymore, but speak the truth. It says things like, don't steal anymore, but get a job so that you could share the things that you have, no longer steal. Don't tear each other down, but build each other up. It says things like, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Ephesians 5 says things like, be sexually pure. It teaches husbands the way that they ought to treat their wives, wives the way they ought to treat their husbands, parents and children how they ought to treat each other. Ephesians 6 says, now put on the whole armor of God because our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in this present age. 
It says things like pray at all times. It says things like proclaim the gospel boldly. So what is Ephesians 4 through 6 about? It's about application. It's about obedience. Not the things that God has done, but the things that we must now do in light of what God has done. So we're moving, we're transitioning here from doctrine to duty, from theology to practice, from truth to application, from the things that need to be believed and felt to the things that now we must do, from the things that God has already done to the things that we must now do. Paul is showing us something so utterly critical here, something that we cannot miss as believers and as a church. Why is the book of Ephesians laid out like this. Why is God giving us the book of Ephesians? Two things I want us to see from Ephesians 4.1. Number one, the inseparability of Ephesians 1 through 3 from Ephesians 4 through 6. In other words, the inseparability of theology, what we know from what we obey, what we do. The inseparability of what God has done to now what we must now do. Number one. And then number two, the nature and the order in which these two are connected. The nature and the order in which these two are connected. So let's look at the first one. The inseparability of theology and obedience. We cannot separate doctrine from practice. As Christians, as believers, we cannot separate theology from obedience. So how does Paul connect it to? Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. After finishing his discourse, his teaching on Ephesians 1 through 3, everything God has done, he connects the two, moving into Ephesians 4 through 6, with the word therefore. I, therefore. Right? Whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what's it there for? Right? <laughs> Ephesians 1 through 3. Hear all the things that God has done for you. Comprehend it. Feel it. Know it. Now, therefore, in light of everything that God has done, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying, I've just taught you this grand, amazing theology of what God has done. Now, let's apply it. He's saying, look at these grand realities. God chose you before the foundations of the world to be his. He predestines you for adoption. He gave you the blood of Jesus by which we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. If these grand realities are true, then it has to change something about us. If all those things have been applied to us, if God did all those things to us as a church, as a people, it ought to change us. It ought to change the way that we live. If those grand realities are true, there are now grand realities to be obeyed. That's what Paul's saying. And with the word, therefore, he's being absolutely adamant here about the inseparability of theology from obedience. I therefore urge you, he says. I therefore urge you. And why is he being so adamant? Because he knows that left to ourselves, we will separate the two. Left to ourselves, we, we will either choose to live in Ephesians 1 through 3, or we will choose to live in Ephesians 4 through 6. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. 
See, some of us, we like to live over here in Ephesians 1 through 3. I personally fall in this camp. We like the knowing and believing and feeling part of Christianity, not necessarily the doing part of Christianity. And some people are naturally intellectual. God has given you a certain kind of mind, and so you enjoy reading. You like listening to sermons. You like listening to podcasts. You like talking about or even arguing about theology with people. I don't do that, but maybe you do. Um, You like reasoning and handling great truths and doctrines. These are all great things. But the particular danger that we face if we live here is we spend all of our time with doctrine and we stay in doctrine. We spend all of our time in theology, studying theology, and those are good things. But we might very well find ourselves having fallen into the very snare of the devil by believing, our believing, our theology, never moving us into obedience, right? He might have us just where he wants us. Do you know that the Bible says even the demons believe and shudder? No matter how good you think your theology is, no matter how right and precise you think your beliefs about God are, did you know that the demons have better theology than you? They actually have perfect theology. All the things about God, they know exactly. But do they love God? Do they obey God? Do they submit to God? You see, many of us, our level of knowledge, our level of theology has surpassed our level of obedience. Is that true about you? Our level of theology of what we know about God, it's surpassed our level of obedience. In light of the far more series, Angela and I, we were having our family devotion time with our kids and we were just sharing with them the things that we learned and sharing the things that God was calling us to do. And one of the things was, Hey kids, we, we, we want to start giving more money to Jesus because we want to say to him, Jesus, we love you and we trust you more than money. And now this isn't just something Mama and Appa are going to do. This is something we're all going to do. We have, we have three kids. Malachi, he's our oldest. He's almost seven. Evie's five and Moses is three. And so we say, okay, go get all your money right now. Go upstairs, go get your piggy banks, go get your wallets. You're going to give all your money to Jesus right now. And Malachi, without even thinking, he just goes upstairs. He grabs his piggy bank and brings his wallet. And I'm like, yes, I'm such a good parent. I'm such a parenting thing. I'm crushing it right now, you know. Um, But that feeling is short-lived because I look at my daughter, Evie, and she's just standing there real nervously, fingers in her mouth. And she goes, all of it? You want me to give all of it? And then I look at, over at Moses, and he just goes, Wah! he's just crying, and <laughs> he has like a dollar twenty-seven, and <laughs> he's crying. And so I look at him, I immediately go into lecturing, why are you crying right now? What do you do with your money? Do you buy food with your money? Do you buy clothes with your money? Are you paying rent with your money? Money is just something you have and you're just holding and you're not doing any, anything. Mama and Appa provide for you everything that you need, not money. So why can't you give it all to Jesus? And as I'm saying all these things, it just hits me. I'm Moses. I'm Evie. When it came down to pray, Angela and I, about how much we need to give and commit, why didn't it 
crossed my mind in a very real way that maybe God was calling us to empty our bank accounts and give everything. Why? Why didn't, why didn't that thought cross my mind? Because my theology, because my knowledge about God had surpassed my obedience. It's not that God was actually calling us to do that. It's the fact that I didn't even ask. My knowledge had surpassed my obedience. Others of you, it's not the knowing and studying of theology per se, but it's the feeling you get from gospel truths. The feeling you get. Here's what I mean. You hear Paul say things like, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You hear and pray things like, I pray that you would know the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. And you're just, you're just feeling it. You're just going, yes, Jesus, Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. And you're just feeling it, right? But are you doing anything about it? You're feeling it. You're feeling these gospel truths. Yes, Jesus loves you. But are you doing anything about it? You're the type that likes to watch sad movies. I don't know why you like to watch sad movies, laying in your bed, you're just watching and crying, and, and you like the fact that you're crying for some reason. You, you're watching this poor orphan digging through trash to, to find food, and you're, you're crying, and, and you like it. Do you know why? Because you're feeling like you're a compassionate person. You're sitting around going, I'm just so compassionate right now. <laughs> Poor kid, I'm crying. I'm such, such a compassionate person. But you're feeling compassionate, but are you being compassionate? See the difference? You're feeling compassionate, but are you being compassionate? James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You're not compassionate because you feel sad and you're crying about it. You're not being compassionate unless you actually do something about the person in need. See, some of us, our feelings, our feelings have surpassed our obedience. Let's take repentance, for instance. Let's say you come to a church service like this and there's some sin that you're harboring in your life, right? And you, you're singing the songs and you're, and you're hearing the word be preached and you feel the conviction and the sorrow comes and you hear... God say things like, I don't, I don't want that in your life. I want something better for you, right? And you're feeling the sorrow, you're feeling the conviction, and they're all good things. You ought to feel a godly sorrow when there's sin in your life, right? But is that repentance? Is that repentance? See, many of us, we, we trick ourselves into believing, yeah, I'm repentant, because you're sad about the sin that you're committing, But there is no repentance until there's actually an action in which you turn away from your sins. Stop doing what you're doing to kill the sin. Do you see that? God wants repentance in your life. See, the sorrow is good, okay? But the sorrow is not complete unless it actually moves us into action, into repentance. The thinking and the the feeling, they're all good things. 
but it's not worth very much if it doesn't actually move us into obedience and action. There's another camp, isn't there? There's a group that likes to live in Ephesians 4 through 6, likes to live over here. The amazing thing about you guys is that while the Ephesians 1 through 3 people are at coffee shops studying their theology books and having a feeler fest going crazy in their journals, you're actually obeying the truths that they're studying. You're actually obeying the truth that these people are feeling. That's the amazing thing about you guys. But here are the particular dangers that you might face if you're an Ephesians 4 through 6 person. In in the story of Mary and Martha, you're the Martha. You're running around, you're doing this and that, you're serving here and there, all the while Mary is doing what? She's, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, just fixated upon him, just listening to his every word. And so the danger that you would face in this group is that you would always be around Jesus, Serving and doing this always around Jesus without ever meeting Jesus because you're too busy to just sit at his feet, be fixated upon him, listen to him. The particular danger that you might face is that because because you don't know the theology of Romans 11.35, who has ever given a gift to God that he ought to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Because you don't know that theology, in all your doing for God, you develop a sense of entitlement. So you pray something, you ask him for something, and he doesn't answer you or give it to you the way that you would like. And so you get angry at him. Because you believe since you did some things for him, you need to be repaid. A particular danger you might face is that when someone points out some sin in your life, you immediately lash out in anger. You say, how dare you? Let me point out some things in your life. Because to you, your righteousness means everything. Your obedience and what you do for God is everything because that's the only way you could have a manageable God, a God that you can negotiate with, a God that you could ask to do some things for you because you did some things for him. Because you never got to see the face of Jesus shine like the sun as you're reading the scriptures. Because you never felt the utter depth and depravity of your own sinfulness as you're reading his word. You get tricked into believing that you have a God that you can negotiate with. If you live in Ephesians 1 through 3, if you live over here, the great danger that you're facing is faith without works, right? The great danger of Ephesians 1 through 3 only is faith without works. And the great danger that Ephesians 4 through 6 only people are facing is what? Salvation by works. Faith without works or salvation by works. These are the dangers that we're facing. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's the very opposite of the gospel. Second thing I want us to see is the order and the nature in which these two are connected. The order in which they're connected. Let me ask you a very obvious question. Ready? What comes first? Ephesians 1 through 3 or Ephesians 4 through 6? What comes first? Ephesians 1 through 3 or 4 through 6? Promise not a trick question. I'm not going to say gotcha. 
the answer is so obvious, but we cannot miss it. We cannot miss it. If you get the order wrong, you'll get Christianity wrong. Without exaggeration, heaven and hell hang in the balance. If you get the order wrong, you will not make it into heaven. Here's why. Ephesians 1 through 3, what is it about? It's about what God has done. It's about what God has done to save you, right? It's about your salvation by God's works. What's Ephesians 4 through 6 about? It's about our works. It's about what we do, okay? And so the order is everything here. What the scriptures are telling us is God works first. He saves you first. And then he calls you to obey, okay? If we flip the order upside down, what are we saying? We're saying we obey first. We work first. And then God saves us. It's the very opposite of the gospel. Let's look at the story of the Israelites being delivered out of slavery in Egypt as as the perfect example of this. The story is familiar to many of you. God's people are living as slaves in Egypt, right? The labor is hard. The labor is bitter. Pharaoh is refusing to let God's people go. Do you remember what God had Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my people... What did Charlton Heston say? Let my people... Let my people go, right? And what was the second part? You remember? Let my people go so that they may worship me, so that they may serve me. We forget the second part in in, in so many ways. Make no mistake, worship is obedience. Worship is obedience, okay? Let my people go so that they may worship me. We think about worship being singing songs, and it is that, but it's so much more than that. Worship is obedience. The let my people go and the so that they may worship me, it can't be separated. It can't be separated, and they have to be in order. Notice the order. Let my people go, right? Salvation. Let my people go, salvation. And then obedience. So that they may worship me, so that they may obey me. When God calls Moses the first time to go to Egypt in Exodus 3, this is what he said. He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Okay, so what is he talking about? God delivers his people out of Egypt, right? Across the Red Sea, and he brings them to a mountain, Mount Horeb. Do you know what happened at this mountain? God gives them the Ten Commandments. What is it about this mountain that God would say, my people are not going to be able to worship until they get here? He gives them the law. He gives them instructions on how to obey. He gives them instructions on what worship looks like. All right? So worship is obedience. Christians, listen. If you think you're living a life of worship, but you're not obeying, you're wrong. Without obedience, there is no worship. You can't have a Christian that is worshiping if you don't have a Christian that is obeying. Worship is obedience. Think about the order again. He doesn't come to Egypt while they were slaves. He doesn't come to Egypt while they were slaves, completely powerless to save themselves, gives them the Ten Commandments and says, okay, here are all my laws. 
Obey me perfectly. Worship me. And then I will save you. No. He comes to them while they were powerless. And God and God alone works to save them. Right? What does God do? He makes the river bleed. God made the river bleed. God made the locusts swarm. God killed the firstborn. God tore apart the sea. God and God alone works to save his people. And this is what our story looks like. While we were dead in our transgressions and sins, while we were slaves to sin and death, while we were powerless to free ourselves, does God come to us and say, obey me, do this and that, and then I will save you? No, he saves us first. God works to save us first. How did he save us? Just as he once made the river bleed, he made who bleed? He made Jesus bleed. Just as he once caused the locusts to swarm, he caused the enemies of his son to swarm. Just as he tore apart the sea, he tore apart his son from his very presence as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as he once killed all the firstborn, he kills the true firstborn. And then he raises him back to life. And by his doing and his doing alone, he saved you. And then he comes to say, here are all the ways that I want you to obey me. Here's what worship looks like now. For the very first time in your life, you're actually able to obey. For the very first time in your life, you're actually able to worship. And he shows us what it looks like. You see, obeying God isn't something that we have to do so that God will save us. Obeying God is something we get to do because he saved us. Obeying God isn't something we have to do so that God will save us. Obeying God is something we get to do because he saved us. See, the gospel order is this. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. God works first. Some of you, though, you've got the order wrong. And you're exhausted. You guys feel that? You feel an exhaustion because you think, I have to obey. I better obey or God's going to punish me. I better obey. I better keep all the rules. I better be a good person or or he's not going to love me, or he's going to send me to hell, right? While others of you, you've disconnected the two altogether. You're living an aimless and fruitless life because you're thinking, it doesn't really matter what I do. God calls me to do some things, sure, and I'll try, but if I don't, no big deal. Why? Because Jesus obeyed for me. All I have to do is believe that. I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is believe. You disconnected the two. Neither one of those is the gospel. The gospel says, let my people go so that they may worship me. You can't separate the two and you have to get the order right. And so are you exhausted? You exhausted? Desperately trying to be a good person? Desperately trying to obey because you think if you don't, God is going to punish you? Well, you've got the order wrong. You were a bad person. You didn't obey a single commandment. But God took the punishment for you anyways. Jesus took the punishment for you anyways. He loved you and he saved you even before you could ever obey. Or are you living an aimless and fruitless life? A life that 
You're just wandering around. You sense no purpose. You, you feel no fruit coming out of your life. Why? Because what you do, the decisions that you make, at the end of the day, it just doesn't matter. You're thinking, all I have to do is believe. I don't really have to do anything. Well, you're trying to disconnect the two. You're trying to connect theology from obedience. Well, it's true. Jesus did die for you. Jesus did go to the cross for you. But then after, what does he say? He says, now take up your cross and follow me. He says, obey just as I've obeyed. He says, this salvation that I gave you, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do, now do them. Do them. And then on your last day on planet Earth, as you're breathing your last, you'll see the purpose for which, why God saved you. You'll see the abundant, overflowing good fruit from your life that God did through your obedience. And then you'll close your eyes for the last time to this life. And you'll open your eyes for the first time to the next. And you'll see your good master say to you, well done. Have you ever thought about that? Not well-believing, my son. But well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious truths that we see have, has been accomplished for us by you and you alone in Ephesians 1 through 3. You chose us before the foundations of the world to be yours. You called us into adoption as sons. In the blood of Jesus, you gave us forgiveness and redemption. You gave us an inheritance. You gave us your Holy Spirit. You reconciled us not only to yourself, but to each other. For these truths, Father, let us not forget them. As Paul prayed, let us comprehend them. Let us think upon them. Let us believe them. Let us feel them and embrace them. But Father, don't leave us there. Let the thinking and the feeling and the comprehending move us into action. Let it move us into obedience. Let us be a church, God. Let us be a people, God, that don't just say we believe some things, but we also do the things that we believe. Make us a people that are not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Accomplish both in our lives, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.